0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert
1: Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And oh, man, am I excited. The Houston Cougars are in the final four for the first time in 37 years. You know, we'll be looking back at their weekend. That's why you're hearing their music behind us. We've also got Astros who are just days away from opening day at a course we're contractually obligated to talk Texans, but they've done a couple of good things. That's something we're talking about. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Curran.
2: Stephen, I got two words for you. Whose house? Oh, uh, Cougar's house. Yes, yes, yes. i am telling you, Robert, it's been a while since we've actually had something like this to celebrate, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, we had the Astros' strong run you know, last year, but it, it kind of ended, uh, you know, on a whimper. <laughs> but yeah, this is great. I mean, this brings back a lot of memories for me because the last time the Cougars were in the final four, I was in college. I was a senior in college. And what's ironic, you know, they, they played Georgetown in the finals in 1984 when, uh, you know, it was Hakeem Olajuwon versus Patrick Ewing. I was going to a college called Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. Oh, that's right. Unfortunately, it didn't help the Cougars win. (laughs) But (laughs) anyway, there's a little touch of irony there. I was 10 years old when
1: the Phi Slamma run started. There were three straight Final Fours at that time, back in 82 to 84. And you kind of expected it back then. Their run this year is so much sweeter because there's no Elijah Wan or Drexler or even Elvin Hayes, there's, there's not that star. There's not the Hall of Famer, destined Hall of Famer, I guess you would call it, from that group. Uh, maybe we didn't know it about uh, Drexler, but certainly Elijah Wine, you could feel it. The preseason conference player of the year leaves the program for the Cougars earlier this season. They've fought through a pandemic with most of the team and players getting the virus. What they did had a higher degree of difficulty, Stephen, than the legendary teams of the past, at least in my opinion.
2: No, I totally agree with you, Robert. And this is really a -A T-E-A-M team, that just a a group of players that just refuses to lose. And, you know, Kelvin Sampson said it best, Robert, I I think, because let's be honest, in two of the four games, the Cougars really hadn't played that well. The Rutgers game, they probably shouldn't have won. The game last night, well, Monday night as we're recording this, they... Yeah, they should have won, but they should have won by a lot more, but it's just one of those things where if you don't play well enough to win, then just simply play like you refuse to lose. And and that's what this team has done. They they've gotten the job done when they need to, and it's been all about defense and the offensive rebounding. I just I can't get over how this team just bangs the boards, you know, they they take a lot of shots and yeah, they miss a lot of shots. But, man, oh, man, they get those offensive rebounds that continually give them second, third, sometimes even fourth chances. So, yeah, this is definitely more of a team of players to watch rather than one individual who just stands out head and shoulders above the other guys. Yeah, it's funny
1: you mentioned the rebounding because, you know, Kelvin Sampson will tell you, hey, that's our bread and butter. We don't worry about making shots because we know that's always going to be part of the Houston Cougars basketball game although you know we're getting to the point in the tournament where they need to have a hot shooting game from a couple of their stars and I'm going to get to that in a second but just gotta give a big shout out to Dekey Giroux who as much as we love him as Cougs fans the CBS broadcast crew I don't know if you've noticed this Steven they have turned him into the NBA finals Michael Jordan with the flu reincarnated <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I I've heard references you know to that and Willis Reed, you know the, that famous thing, and and really, you know that's what you call that's what you call leadership. Here's a guy that just he he did not want he he begged Kelvin Sampson to put him back in that game against Rutgers, and when he got back in there, you know it was obvious that he just wasn't going to let the pain keep him from bringing that team back. I mean, it, it's hard not to draw those comparisons when you see what the guy was going through, just how much pain he was in. You know, when the adrenaline kicks in and everything, it just, it it made the difference. Just him being in there, I think when, once he came back in that game, really, that was the spark the team needed. To me, that was the turning point of that game.
1: Yeah, you had the game, of, you know, obviously the, the big game with the hit pointer, but also, you know, he goes out with the cramps in his calf, and, you know, I guess it's not such a big deal, but then they're going to make a big deal out of that on the CBS crew, and then also... You just thought well what is it going to be in, in this uh, game against Oregon State is it going to, is he gonna he's gonna have a baby at halftime and, and then come back from that I mean what's going to happen next
2: <laughs> yeah it's just and, and that's just one of the reasons this this team has been so fun to watch and hey you know they can make all those references at least they're they're giving some love to Houston which uh, you know to me above everything else that's all that matters Houston is getting some love right now Robert and boy we sure need it With how he's playing, I just want to point something out because
1: I've seen people say, oh, I don't know if he's really an NBA guy because he doesn't have the outside jumper, although that's coming along a little bit for him. But I just think of somebody like Playoff Rondo. He's Playoff Rondo basically for the Cougars this year, and he's got the same body. He's long. He's lanky, plays incredible defense, uh, rebounds, does everything on the basketball floor, except being that knockdown shooter. But like I said, that's getting better. It's going to get better as play as he plays more basketball. We've seen this with many guys that get into the NBA that that shot starts to happen. And it's not really a jump shot. It's more like Rondo's shot. It's real slow developing shot. But, you know, he could be a Rajon Rondo in the NBA.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's one of those players, Robert, that still has upside to develop. I think that, you know, he will be in the NBA and I just think his, his game will evolve and continue to grow. He's one of those players that's going to work hard to improve and to get better. And I think you will see, I I just think, you know, his ceiling has, it hasn't come to that yet. He's still got some development. And I think he's just one of those guys that, you know, two or three years from now, you're going to look at him and go, man, he's, he's even better than he was his last year with the Cougars. I mean, it, He's just one of those guys that is fun to watch. And then I think we'll get better as time goes on. Yeah. And you want to
1: play with somebody like him if if you're an NBA player, because oh, absolutely. he's just all heart and guts out there. And let me just say something about this Oregon state second half, because it was scary as hell. And Steven, I don't know about you. I was getting some
2: 1983 NC state flashbacks. You know what, Robert, this, this may come as a surprise to you, but that 1983 finals loss to North Carolina state was absolutely the most difficult loss that I have ever had as a Houston sports fan. And yes, that includes the Oilers Buffalo game. Cause I had a distraction that day. My, my son had just been born and was coming home from the hospital. That NC state game, Robert, I, I, I spent weeks trying to get over that. And I think it was just because I felt the Cougars should have won that game that no, they should have beaten that team. That's a team they should have beaten. Of course. I mean, it wasn't just
1: that they should have won the game. It it, it just was the fact that they were so favored
2: in that game, and they had so much talent on that team. Well, and here's the other thing that made me upset about that, and then I'll get back to your point. You know, that was back when they had no shot clock, and teams would stand there and hold the ball for five minutes, dribble, 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 pass, 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 finally put up a shot. You know, to me, if there had been a shot clock, there is no way North Carolina State could have won that game. But getting back to the Oregon State game, yeah, it, it was it was getting a little scary, and it was even thinking, you know, blowing leads like what the Rockets would do. But this team, Robert, you know, as I've said, they just continue to battle, battle, battle. Kelvin Sampson is the type of coach that just he he will not let up. He does not let up on those guys. You need a coach like that. When you get in a situation where Oregon State was starting to make their shots, the Cougars were just missing left and right. You know, and I've pointed this out on on numerous podcasts, Robert. They go in these shooting spells, and as they get deeper into the tournament, and I think you just mentioned this a little while ago, they've got to start making those shots. They've just got to. They can't do that in the Final Four and expect to win. But, hey, this team just continues to defy and come back, and they blew a 17-point lead, but... Then they started making the shots, you know, and they were missing free throws, too. That was another thing. So this team just continues to battle night in and night out when they are put to the test.
1: Yeah. And let's talk about the big picture, because let's move forward a little bit. You know, Quentin Grimes, he played like hot garbage on Monday night. Both Grimes and Sasser need to pick it up, especially from a mental perspective. There were decisions from both guys that I didn't like. Grimes had some dumb fouls. Sasser was shooting from Steph Curry range, which I don't think he's quite good enough to do that. And between Grimes and Sasser, what they did Monday night and what they've done in the tournament release so far, it's not going to get it done if you're going to beat Baylor and then Gonzaga, which is, I think that's the likely finals opponent.
2: I would agree. And, you know, here's the other thing is, and some people may point out, well, the, the Cougars are in the final four because they were the, you know, really the only real high seed to survive in that region. And, you know, they were playing what the 15 and the, the 12 and the 11 and 10 and so on and so forth. Well, that's true, but you know, you got to get there. That's the thing. You got to get there no matter what it is. And as we saw Rutgers and Oregon state gave them a battle, you know, at least for a while. So they're, they're definitely going to have to step up their game. And those players that you just mentioned, you know, Sasser in particular has had a couple of really bad games. They're going to have to come through when they play Baylor. And if they get past that, certainly in the final. When I look at Baylor, I just don't see the Cougs being
1: able to shoot with them. They're a great three-point shooting team. This and Mitchell kid looks like he could be a star in the NBA. They have at least two or three NBA caliber players. The Cougs, like you said, they've been fortunate with the good draw, but now you're facing
2: loaded teams. Loaded is right. And, I mean, you even look at, uh, let's say, if Michigan gets there, uh, you know, and UCLA. I mean, these teams, these are the teams that obviously deserve to be there. Uh, but, yeah, Baylor and Gonzaga, I, I think I'm with you, Robert. Those, those are the two teams that scare me the most right now. And, of course, Gonzaga, you know, they're going for the the Indiana undefeated thing because, you know, they're the last team to do that in 1976 to go all the way through undefeated like that. They're chasing that. Yeah, them and Baylor are definitely going to be, I think, the, the toughest teams in this final four, at least at this moment. And all these teams have more size
1: than the Cougars have, which, you know, a lot of times the Cougars can make up for that. But they shoot the ball, not just from three-point range, from NBA range. They shoot the ball with guys in their face. Um, they don't turn the ball over. When I watch some of these teams, it's just they're so good all around. Some of the best teams I've seen in the tournament in years, actually.
2: Well, and, you know, the Cougars do have some problems with with big men. You know, you saw in Syracuse when they had that zone defense and the Cougars were penetrating it, they put their big man, Jesse Edwards, in the middle, and all of a sudden, it, it was like the game changed. He started blocking shots. The Cougars started turning the ball over, missing shots. I mean, they they were befuddled. Now, they adjusted. You know, they, to Kelvin Sampson's credit, you know, he and his son, Kellen, they do... You know, have a, a good a tendency to just on the fly, but as you said, these are much better shooting teams that you're going to be facing in the final four, and you know, with their big games, so it's going to be a lot tougher for them to do that from here on out. Just hope you don't see a one-three-one zone or whatever that was, because was... yeah, that Oregon <laughs> State, yeah, they they definitely started. Well, they did a lot of switching, and and the Cougars were definitely having some problems with the, the switching. It kind of looked like a one-three-one, and you know then it would switch to kind of a traps so, of the eye yeah, it was <laughs> they were they were showing some different looks kind of like a an NFL defense you know trying to change things up every play is it safe to say that Tillman
1: Fertitta is a much better college basketball team owner than NBA basketball team owner
2: <laughs> well right now you look at the results yes absolutely he
1: is yeah you got to give Tillman a lot of credit as much as he's taken some flack for the rockets you got to give him credit because the money that he spent has brought in a Kelvin Sampson and has kept a Kelvin Sampson and has brought in players that want to be here that are of high quality. And the one thing that I thought of, though, as I was watching this weekend with the Cougars, I'm like, this could be so much easier. If Caleb Mills was getting more of the minutes as opposed to Sasser, that guy was, let's not forget, he was a preseason conference player of the year. I mentioned it earlier, but if you have him with Grimes and Giroux, I I just feel like boy, this team is just, it it becomes a lot harder to beat because Caleb Mills is a much better shooter than just about everybody except for Grimes.
2: Yeah, he and Grimes would definitely, I, I would feel a lot better, Robert, if we had him in there and that was such a big loss and I think we even talked about it on a previous podcast that you know, the loss of Caleb Mills, you know, especially if this team gets deep into the tournament, might come back to bite them. Well, so far it hasn't, but now in the Final Four, boy, could you use a guy like that. And and getting back to Tillman Fertitta, let's not discount the persuasiveness of Kelvin Sampson when he took the job. You know, he told Tillman Fertitta, I mean, he wasn't afraid to step up and say, listen, this is what I need. If you want this program to be a winner— I need this. I I need a new facility. I need this. I need this. I need this. And, you know, to his credit, Tillman listened and gave him what he wanted. And Kelvin Sampson, let's just not discount the difference. You know, a a coach is kind of like a quarterback sometimes. I think they get too much credit when they win, too much blame when they lose. But let's not discount the value that Kelvin Sampson is to this Cougar team. You know, he puts the right players on the floor, but you got to know how to coach them when they're out there. And he stays on this team. He is intense. I mean, man, I wish – I hate to say this, but (laughs) I wish the Rockets had Kelvin Sampson or a coach like him at this point in time, don't you? Oh, yeah, because he gets these guys to put forth effort,
1: you know, from beginning to end nonstop. It's just an onslaught with the Cougars, and all you got to do is go out to practice once. And I've been out to practice with Kelvin Sampson – And frankly, I'm scared. I'm like, get me out of here. Like, (laughs) this this is too (laughs) much. And you're
2: not even playing for him. So, yeah, (laughs) exactly.
1: But, uh, you know, I saw odds as far as, you know, who could win the whole championship before the weekend started. And, you know, you'd have to check the odds right now. But believe it or not, the Cougars were number two as far as the odds to win the championship behind Gonzaga, which I, I was a little surprised about. You know, I'd be interested to see. I need to check it out. But um after that after this uh this weekend. But yeah, just uh they're 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 getting some respect, at least from odds bakers.
2: No matter how deep they end up going, whether they lose in the semifinal or or the final again, just the fact that they're in the final four. Man, Houston just needs this so badly right now. We just, you know, let's just enjoy the ride. You know, we'll find out on Saturday. So you know, we'll we'll see how far they can go. But right now, they got there, and that's the first thing you need to do. You need to get there And then we'll see what happens from that point. Yeah, going back to the NC State and the Five
1: slam pajama teams, if they didn't win, you were disappointed. This is a deal where you just got to be happy that they're in the dance and in the Final Four.
2: And here's the thing. You know, in in 82, when they lost in the semifinal, it, it was to North Carolina and Michael Jordan. In 84, when they got to the final, they lost to Georgetown and Patrick Ewing. That's why, you know, to me, the 83 loss stung so badly because who was North Carolina state? You know, they, they were, they were the underdog. They were the Cinderella and this team was so much better. I, I know, you know, you had the Sidney Lowe and Lorenzo Charles and those guys, everybody was talking about them, but that was only after that, that tournament. But, but that's to me, you know, in 82 and 84, they just went up against better players, better teams. And that just, I mean, not a whole lot better, but you're talking Michael Jordan and then you're talking Patrick Ewing. But 83 was just the one time that I just felt that was where they really should have done it and they didn't. But you know what? That team still gave us a lot of fond memories that we will always cherish and remember. So there, there is that to hold on to. Yeah. According to the
1: odds makers, this is uh, one I went to. Uh, it says South region number one seed Baylor at East seed number one region Michigan, Trail Gonzaga and NCAA championship odds at plus 250 and plus 600, respectively. Meanwhile, Houston, which just clinched a berth in the final four as the number two seed, sits at plus 450. So they are third, it looks like. I mean, if I'm doing the math here, it's third favorite behind uh, Baylor and then Michigan. Or, I'm sorry, Gonzaga. Gonzaga. Gonzaga and then uh, Baylor, I should say.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I you know, we'd love for Houston to be the favorite. But, yeah, you know, sometimes it, it, to me with odds makers, I, I'd almost rather be the underdog. It just, you know, let them think that we can't and then we can. But either way, they're up there. You know, they're at least third. So three out of the four. So it, at least, as I said earlier, Houston's getting some love. And that's something that we haven't seen in quite a while, Robert. Yeah, and I expect him to, to be the underdog, especially against
1: uh, Gonzaga and certainly – Baylor as well, but uh, you know, almost as exciting as the Cougars' final four run is Astros opening day. It's just two days away, Thursday, April first, against the A's. We're we're just about here. What are the storylines that you're watching, Stephen, as we approach opening day here?
2: Oh yeah, well, you know, there are, of course some interesting things. Uh, first of all, as I told you in the last podcast, I'm just excited that baseball is here and that hopefully we'll get to play a full season without too much trouble, although. You know, you've got uh, some guys, you've got a a couple of guys that aren't going to be at least on your opening day roster, and that's Abraham Toro and, uh, well, Miles Straw, Abraham Toro are on the protocol, the COVID protocol. So, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. But manager Dusty Baker has set his starting rotation for the A-Series. We already knew that Zach Grinke was going to be the opener. He made that pretty clear a while back. But uh, Christian Javier is going to get in the second slot, and oh. then you have Lance McCullers Jr. Yeah, yeah, Javier. That's a uh... a little surprised that he was up there. He hadn't thrown as many innings, so that that's going to be something to keep an eye on. And then you have Lance McCullers and then Jose ortiti as uh, the fourth starter. Now they haven't named a fifth starter yet. It's either going to be between Brandon Bielak and Luis Garcia. And I don't, Robert. I know your feelings about Luis Garcia, so I'm thinking that you're you're thinking the same way I am probably leaning you know maybe toward him as being the fifth starter at least at that particular time yeah from what i heard in the spring training broadcast
1: belak's worked on some things over the off season but garcia if, if i'm going by what i saw last year i really liked what i saw from garcia and belak had some Rough, rough outings towards the end of his, you know, chance at a starting position. Sort of was it? The, was it the middle of uh, last season? I don't. So short. I don't know <laughs> when exactly it was. Yeah,
2: it was. Yeah, he definitely struggled last year, and uh, he's looked somewhat better, but he still has is still trying to figure it out. But regardless of which one doesn't get that fifth spot, they will go into the bullpen, so they're still going to be on the roster at least as of now. You know, uh, so uh, there is that to look at. But at least the first four games have been set. And, uh, you know, Chaz McCormick is, uh, you know, the fourth outfielder. He made the team pretty exciting. And he didn't have a great spring, but then really none of the outfielders who were fighting for a spot, none of them really stood head and shoulders above the other. Jose Siri really didn't look that impressive. Although, you know, Chaz McCormick is more of a corner outfielder than a center fielder, which, you know, maybe a big thing with with Miles Straw being out, Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. Who's the starting center fielder on on opening day? That's the question. I
1: mean, is it, is it McCormick? Is that, or did they move Kyle Tucker to center and they put Yordan and Brantley in left and right?
2: Well, they, they haven't determined that. I mean, they did also play Kyle Tucker in center toward the end of spring training. I mean, I would tend to want to go with him, I think in center, you know, and and try to let Brantley. And I don't know if you want to start McCormick on opening day. With, with Alvarez, I mean, it's just going to be a time-will-tell thing of whether he can hold up. But, yeah, that's going to be a question. You know, with opening day, it's still kind of tentative as to whether Miles Straw will even be there, at, at, the, at least at the time that we're recording this. So that's going to be something to watch. But, yeah, you lose Miles Straw, you've got Chaz McCormick, Kyle Tucker, Michael Brantley, and Jordan Alvarez maybe as your spots in the outfield, and that's that, unless they make a waiver wire move before opening day. Let me ask you this: uh, Were there any surprises for you of guys that
1: did and didn't make opening day? And I guess the the, the big thing that we maybe need to talk about, uh, and I'll open it up with, is C. Shack. C. Shack looked really good. Uh, he's a veteran. They decided not to keep him around, which was interesting because some people made the connection that you know if you kept C. Shack, it puts him a little bit. Above where they want to be money wise, above the uh, above the line, and that might have had something to do with C-Sheck not being there, which you know I I just didn't see Jim Crane as one of those guys that's going to be nickel and diamond here as far as the, the the salary cap or or whatever you would call the cap I guess now
2: these days in Major League Baseball, but. Was that something that you noticed? Yeah, I think C-Sheck probably was more of a money move. I mean, he's been durable and he hasn't. You know, he he got off to a rough start. I mean, his first outing, what he give up three home runs, but he he did kind of settle down after that. I thought he might make the roster, and I see that where the uh, Angels have signed him or are going to sign him. Uh, I saw that this morning, so uh, he's he's still going to be in the division, I guess. He's going to haunt the Astros.
1: Won- he's going to haunt yep.
2: them. If- Astros don't want him. The Angels will gladly take him. I think they also signed Tony Watson. So, yeah, that's going to be something to keep an eye on. I mean, I, I think he may have just gotten cut, I mean, uh, it, as far as a numbers game, even though, you know, Pedro Baez is still not on the roster, but he'll be back at some point. But uh, you've got, you know, your bullpen uh, looking like uh, coming up with uh, Ryan Presley, Joe Smith. You've got Enoli Paredes, Brooks Raley, you know, Ryan Stanick you've got Blake Taylor, you know, Andre Scrub is, is out at the moment. So, you know, that's something else that come to come into play later. But uh, then of course, uh, Brandon Belak, Brian Abreu. So yeah, Steve Ciszek, I thought he might make the team. I I was pulling for him too, because he can provide you some innings if you need them, but it just didn't work out. Apparently the Astros decided to go another direction. Abreu is
1: a little bit of a surprise, but that happened because of, you know, what's going on with injuries and so on and so forth, but you know, I, it's going to be a big deal that the Astros get some guys back at some point this season, like an Austin Pruitt, for example, they they need him to finally be able to play. He's still around, right?
2: Yeah, he's still around. He's still uh, getting back to it. So, you know, and, and keep in mind this opening day roster is going to change. It, it's going to fluctuate as guys come back or, you know, heaven forbid <laughs> as guys go out. So, you know, what What it looks like right now, even if it is, it, it's not even completely set just because of, you know, what we're talking about, Miles Straw being out, and and as I mentioned earlier, Abraham Toro, and it was Garrett Stubbs, I I couldn't think of who else was out. Th- those two weren't going to be on the opening day roster to start with, but Miles Straw is the biggest thing right now, as far as your position players go. Pedro Baez is the biggest guy in the bullpen, obviously. Yeah, the biggest guy in the bullpen definitely is Baez, and he just he just hadn't had enough innings, you know, he's still trying to get back, so... He will be there. And let's not forget Jake Odorizzi, you know, as a starter, he's going to come at some point, make his debut once he rounds into shape. So that's another guy that you can put in your starting rotation there. So it's going to evolve over time.
1: Yeah. And I've got a little game for you. Let's play this game called What Are You More Concerned About, Stephen? All right. So what are you more concerned about the starting pitching depth or the question mark at closer?
2: Yeah, the question mark at closer, it's more of an intriguing question. I mean, you can put Presley in there, and uh, he did struggle a bit last season. I, I just, you know, to say that the Astros have a sure-fire closer, you know, C-Shack at least had some closing experience, so that was another reason I thought maybe he would be in the mix, just because it gives you another option at that position. But, you know, James Click has said many times that he doesn't like to go with an all-out closer guy. So we'll see how much that holds up, though, as the year goes on. It looks like they're just going to do it by committee. But I, I think Presley is the guy right now. You know, it's his job to lose at this point. But, uh, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what other options they want to put in there, especially if someone like C-Sheck uh, didn't make the team, which he didn't. Well, that means you're saying the question mark at Closer has
1: got you a little bit more worried.
2: Yeah, I, I am a little more concerned about that. Just because the Closer thing, you know, it's like the kicker in football. It just tends to be feast or famine. You either do really well with it or you suck. And, you know, Ryan Presley didn't really suck, but he, he gave me some nervous moments last year. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a little more nervous about that than the starting rotation. You know, especially if if Jaco Odorizzi can round into shape and, and come into play, and if you can get some good innings, you know, or Keady can kind of establish himself as, uh, you know, pitching more innings, and Lance McCullers can round out and be better, there are some question marks, cer- certainly, especially when you're talking about durability and how many innings can these guys go. But the closer really is the biggest question and, and just whether that can round out. Yeah,
1: Osuna gave me a lot of uh, moments as well. And, you know, the Astros, the closer, just I haven't felt a whole lot of confidence since the heyday of Brad
2: Lidge, probably. Yeah, Brad Lidge, <laughs> Billy Wagner, you know, those guys. Is You know, as Milo, the late Milo Hamilton used to say, Roberto Osuna made coffee nervous. Yeah, I I definitely couldn't take it when he'd go in there. All right, next one. What are you more concerned about? The leadoff spot or Yuli's bat? The leadoff spot to me is the question mark. I mean, I guess they're they're gonna go with Altuve and I mean I'm okay with that, but boy, you you're just you you have such a big hole. Even even Jose Altuve, I just don't know that he's gonna replace George Springer as your as your leadoff guy. I Just would with what Springer could do. So, yeah, I'd have to say the, the leadoff spot. Now, look, Yuli Gurriel, he is getting older, but well, when he went through last year, I, I just can't believe that he dropped off as much as he did in the way he did. And, hey, if Jordan Alvarez can be in the lineup, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, when you've got Alvarez and Yuli Gurriel in the lineup at the same time, Gurriel's bat just gets hot. So as long as Alvarez is in there... I, I'm okay with Yuli. I, I can I can deal with that. This lineup is so good. I'm
1: not super concerned about either one, but definitely the leadoff spot. It's going to get figured out. Whereas Yuli's bat, I, I just wish I had seen some spring training signs I'm I am a little concerned about that. You know, he's getting old, late thirties. We're going to see on that next one. I've got. What are you more concerned about, Altuve's throws to first base, or? How long
2: Fromber going to be out? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I, you know, I just tend to lean toward optimism with Altuve. I, I just feel like, and Robert, you, you pointed this out either, you know, off the air to me, I think, when we were talking last season, and I think you may have even mentioned it on the podcast, there just seemed to be some things going on with Altuve last year. I think it was just a combination of things. I know he did have some deaths in his family during that time. You know, you had the cheating scandal and just some of the criticism that he took, and he's a sensitive guy. I I just tend to think that, you know, he's come in and he has changed some things during spring training. I'd like to just lean toward the fact that he's gonna be okay defensively. You know, Frommer being out, I mean, that is a big deal. Then, you know, he's supposed to be your ace and he's gonna be out for an indefinite period. So I you know, I I tend to think, at least in the early portion when You're not so sure that the starters are going to give you a lot of innings. Yeah, that's a big deal. But I'm going to say that Altuve has figured it out and that his defense is going to be okay, and that his offense is going to round back into shape, too, this year while we're at it. My hope with Fromber is he's going to be there to come to the rescue and give
1: you innings at that point in the season where a Christian Javier, for example, might not have the arm strength because he hasn't you know, pitched a full season in Major League Baseball. He, he's he got to be there around that point because there's going to be a point midseason coming off a 60-game season, not just with the young guys, but with the veterans too. I don't, I don't know where... Zach Greinke's going to be, or, or Lance McCullers is going to be at about July or August when the dog days start hit, and, and, and you you haven't pitched a 162 game season. It, it's going to be a little bit weird. So you need you need Framber to be around, maybe to to give you those innings at about that point. But you know Altuve to me is that's the big thing because boy, that could really screw things up for you if he, if he can't get it back going, at, you know, throwing to first base.
2: Yeah, and then, you know, then the question becomes what are you going to do? I mean, if if he becomes you know, a Steve Sachs or or someone like that where it's just consistent and you know, especially if he's hitting, you know, how do you do you make the guy the DH? You know, you got Jordan Alvarez and you know, what's his health situation going to be like? So, you hope that that doesn't become a storyline because if it does, Robert, that's going to be a really tough decision to make. I mean, how do you pull a guy out of the lineup unless his bad is just as bad as his defense? You know, you're you're talking about one of the heart and souls of this team, but, you know, winning is is everything. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. So it may come to that. I'm just praying it doesn't. All right, predictions. AL West,
1: I'm going to give you two spots. Who's going to finish first and who's going to finish second in the AL West?
2: Well, I still think the Astros are going to win the division. I'm I'm not sure that I, you know, I think it was – Baseball Reference and, and Fan Graphs—they—they they pretty much think the Astros are going to run away with the division. I—I I don't know that they're going to do that, but I still think that the Astros are going to be first. I don't know the A's—they—they they, they certainly had a great year last year. I, I don't know if they can duplicate that this year. But as I look at you know the Angels and the Rangers and those kind of teams, I—I I just think Oakland is—is going to be behind the Astros. I—I I think it's going to be a pretty close race between those two. The Angels have added
1: some guys at some point. The Angels, it just feels like they've got to move up in the standings a little bit. Yeah, they're due for it, certainly. I'm going to predict them to move up a little bit. The A's, I would be more concerned, but they lost a couple of key guys, I I thought. And so I I guess I'm going to go with the Angels in second place. And yeah, I I think you got to stick with the Astros um, as the best team in the West for the moment. But it, it the wheels could fall off with the, this pitching. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with um, no Fromber and, you know, not the depth that you, you're typically going to have with the Astros with, you know, the, what's gone on with their minor league system and how many guys that they've ar- already had to use. And, you know, there's no Forrest Whitley that's coming along or anything like that. And if you're depending on a Luis Garcia or whatever, I, I just don't – that it can fall off, but I'm, I'm, you know, if they can stay healthy, at least pitching wise, I think they're going to be okay.
2: And let's not forget COVID. I mean, unfortunately, it is still an issue. I mean, look at Miles Straw in that situation. Well, hold up, it's, hold it's, up, it's...
1: hold up with COVID, COVID, because this week the Astros are getting their uh, vaccinations. They're supposed to get it before opening day, from what
2: I read. That is true. They they are. So you know, hopefully, that won't be such a big deal. But, you know, it's just that's, that's still kind of a revolving thing. But, yeah, they are supposed to all get vaccinated before the season opens. So that is true. If you're looking for Rockets Conversation,
1: look in your podcast feed tomorrow because I'm going to have a special podcast with the man behind Clutch Fans, the website, David Hardesty. He's been on before. We love him. Really looking forward to that. Well, I've pushed the
2: Texans about as far back in the show as I could, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? I mean, here's the thing. A few weeks ago, we were trying not to talk about them at all, but unfortunately we had to. But you know what? I, I, as, as a friend of mine put it recently, Nick Casario's, you know, he's not just buying the groceries. He's cooking the food. I mean, he's hes out there working. He's sweating. You know, he, he's lifting weights. He's hes running. I mean, he's working it with the Texans right now, Robert. Yeah, we didn't even get a chance to talk about this last
1: week and give Casario some applause on a couple of moves Since I'd say there's almost no chance Deshaun plays for the Texans this year, I thought that the Tyrod Taylor signing was a good one. They've got a quarterback now that's competent. He's about as good a bridge QB as you're going to find. Plus, Casario gave him this incentive-laden contract with money given to him based on games played, which was really brilliant. I mean, Bill O'Brien wouldn't know what that meant or wouldn't know how to do that or whatever. Yeah.
2: Bill O'Brien's good at spending other people's money, isn't he?
1: Yeah. And in and, <laughs> and, and, and his career, Stephen, he's thrown 54 touchdowns, 20 interceptions, great ratio. Added the three years he started on a regular basis, eh, completed 62.6% of his passes. It's not Deshaun, but it's
2: okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. You know, I, I think he has the third lowest uh, interception rate since 2011 among active players. So he he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He's, you know, I I feel a lot better about the quarterback position now than I did before they got Tyrod Taylor. I think the biggest question with Taylor is just his injury history. You know, when he has been in there, he has had a tendency to get injured. So I don't know, you know, the, the backup quarterback situation may be something to look at too. But having Tyrod Taylor as your insurance policy, Robert, I think it was a great move. And you you said it, it, it's a smart contract. In fact, you know, a lot of these moves that uh, Casario has made for the Texans, they're they're putting out flyers on, you know, taking a chance on guys with one-year contracts, the guys that have something to prove. You know, that's been a lot of these moves. Casario has definitely not been the... Bill O'Brien, let's spend you know Cal McNair's money because it's not mine. It's you know these are short term contracts, scratch off they're, tickets. They're t- I call them scratch off tickets. Like yeah, scratch off tickets. That's a great way to put it. So I I really like what Nick Asario has done with the Texans, at least on paper to this point. Not just with the people he's bringing in, but the the smart way he's gone about it. You know, and let's not forget they restructured Laramie Tunsel and Whitney Merciless's contract. I'm especially glad about Whitney Merciless's contract being restructured concerning the way he's been performing or hasn't been the last year or so. They also signed cornerback Desmond King, who is an
1: interesting guy. In 2018, he was first-team All-Pro. That year, he had the second-highest grade among all cornerbacks, according to Pro Football Focus. The year before that, he graded out 14th among all corners. The last two years haven't been as good. The NFL... In two years, stuff can go bad in a hurry. Um, Not sure why the fall off, but at least he's somebody who's shown at one point, and it wasn't that long ago, it wasn't David Johnson six years ago, that he can play at a high level. He's still only 26. His specialty is as a slot corner. So you got somebody there. You also added uh, Terrence Mitchell, who's at least a solid cornerback, if not exactly great. But, you know, solid is or average will be, uh, upgrade over what the Texans have had this past year or two, both will be better than just total trash. Like, you know, Vernon Hargraves or, you know, we can go through the guys, but it, it's except for Bradley Roby, it's an upgrade.
2: Oh, absolutely. And at this point, Robert, I'll take average over trash. I mean, when you, I mean, at this point, you can't get much worse than what the Texans whole secondary, you know, even safety has been some question marks too, but cornerback, was a really big need and so again they they've taken some chances on some guys that are are at least ha- have been average so i feel somewhat better about the secondary certainly than i did several weeks ago Deshaun
1: i just don't see this ending all that well and you know there's just there just seems like every couple of days there's more and more it's a it's a brilliant strategy just the the constant onslaught and and it's you know, it's kept it in the news and you might go, well, you don't want to talk about a guy's life as far as a strategy, but if you're looking at it in a big picture term, you know, sorry, that that's what's happened to Deshaun. And I I just, I'm seeing it. It's just going to be tough, tough, tough for him to get out of this thing. And now they're talking about, you know, some conversations as far as payoffs and things like that. You know, it's, I don't know if that's, that's going to be proven or not, but, you know, taking down Instagram messages, can they prove that? Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing somebody took some screenshots before he started to delete messages, if you know what I mean.
2: Well, and that doesn't bode well either, Robert. When you start erasing things, it, it almost makes you look guilty. And look, I, I'm not going to sit here and pronounce judgment on Deshaun. I've never met him face to face. I don't know the guy. But unfortunately, you know, in this day and age, it, it, it guilt versus innocence doesn't matter so much as just, you know, what your reputation. Basically, it takes a hit until, you know, before the facts come out. And as I said on the last podcast, the NFL has been famous in the last few years for suspending guys before letting the system, letting the law play out. And that's probably what's going to happen to Deshaun. And that's why, as I said, I feel a lot better about the Texans quarterback situation now than I did several weeks ago. You know, at least having Tyrod Taylor, and depending on what they do in the draft, you know, they're certainly not in the kind of position that they would have been, Had they traded Deshaun before all this happened and gotten a a truckload of draft picks for him, first-round picks for the next couple of years, what have you, but they still could make some waves in the draft, and who knows what you know from that point forward, but it definitely puts both sides in a very awkward situation. Let me ask you, I mean, I don't know if things have changed since we discussed this
1: last week much, but do you believe that he's going to be playing if you were to put money on it? for the Texans this year, whether he's in uniform or suspended or or is he
2: gone before the draft? No, I, I don't see him playing at all this year. And at some point, you know, whenever this thing does settle down, I, I, I remember the first time you asked me, Robert, would Deshaun be traded? And I was just so reluctant. I think I gave you a 60-40, you know, at that point. and And you were more of the, I think, 80-20, 90-10 camp. Yeah. Move over and make room in that boat for me because I'm afraid I'm with you. And I might even say 95-5. You're saying before the draft, though. Well, I don't know about before the draft just because of how in limbo everything is. But at this point, you know, do you do you go ahead and just trade him and get what you can for him? Because it, it's not going to be as much as you probably would have before this thing came up. So I don't know about before the draft. I'm not sure I'm confident to say that. But I just don't think he's I don't I definitely don't think he's going to play another game for the Texans at all. Yeah, my thing though is if he doesn't get traded before the
1: draft, you might as well wait till next year.
2: Well, you'll have to. Yeah, you'll have to. But if he's suspended, how are you going to trade him before the draft and really get anything of value for him? Right, right. Yeah. And so
1: Yeah, it's it's whatever is going to happen. It's not good for the Texans. It's it's all bad outcomes and, you know, uh, last, last couple of things I wanted to mention. There, there was a major sports story. Might have slid under the radar this past week. Steven, let's listen to a sound we heard 35 years ago, and then you can guess what it is and why we're listening to it.
0: The minute the Lakers captured the NBA crown last year, the question became, could they do it again? Now the defending champions are up against it. Instead of contemplating back-to-back titles for the first time in 17 years, the Lakers are one game away from playoff extinction. A loss tonight, and it's over. The Houston Rockets have been riding the strong and determined shoulders of the NBA's latest phenomenon. Underdogs at the start. The Rockets now sense they can take their place among the league's best. Houston is ready to deliver a knockout punch tonight, brimming with a confidence that's been building each game. Tip-off is moments away. It's the last time tonight the Lakers can be alone with their thoughts, wondering if they can take the first step in turning around this Western Conference final.
2: Ah, the voice of Dick Stockton. How can we forget? Yeah, I know he's going to be retiring, and, and he's, of course, the, another familiar voice in the world of broadcasting That' going to be sad not to be listening to him. It is ironic, Robert, that you played that now because, with, <laughs> you know, we're talking about memories. That, that was from the 86 season, right? Yep, that was before the Ralph Sampson game where he hits the miracle shot. Yep, yep. So, you know, you're talking Hakeem Olajuwon, and, you know, we were just talking about, of course, The Cougars making the final four for the first time since 84. So you've got Hakeem in the mix there. So, yeah, it's kind of cool that we're we're just going back to the 80s as far as Houston sports is concerned. But I know Dick Stockton is the tie-in that you were looking for there.
1: That opening, that music and Dick Stockton's voice was such an iconic sound from growing up in the eighties as an NBA fan and Stockton, of course, retiring after 55 years in the business of all the national NBA play-by-play guys. He was my favorite stood on a tier, all of his own His color, color commentator back then was Hubie Brown. And the two of them together pretty much perfection back in the eighties. You weren't getting national games several nights a week, like now. So there was real excitement and anticipation for Dick and Hubie with that
2: iconic opening on CBS, Steven. You know, it's funny. We talk about player matchups so much, but man, announcer matchups, you know, Pat Summerall, John Madden uh, on the radio is Jack Buck and Hank Stram. And, you know, you talk about Dick Stockton, Hubie Brown. I mean, that's, that's one you don't hear very often, but those two, it's it just like players on a team that, that had that chemistry. They knew each other. Well, you know, announcers have that same thing. I mean, you and I have been doing this podcast what for almost two years, Robert. And you know, in order to make it work, it's all about chemistry. And Dick Stockton was one of those guys that just steady as a rock. That's how I describe him. He wasn't flamboyant, you know. He but but he just he was familiar. He just he was comfortable. He was he was well comforting. I I think it just a genuine guy, uh, kind of like a Jim Nance type. You just you knew you could rely on him. But yeah, Dick Stockton, Hume Brown—that that's another great matchup as far as announcing teams are concerned. And there
1: was something about the timber of his voice that sort of matched the NBA, and and in a way that few guys do. I mean, I I think some people would say Marv Albert is is that guy, and I know some people would say oh, Marv Albert's their guy as far as the NBA is concerned. But you know, for me, it was it was Dick Stockton, and of course. He didn't just call the NBA great all-around voice, calling NFL games, Major League Baseball, including his most iconic call, the Carlton Fisk home run in the 75 World Series. I'm too young to remember seeing that one live. Do you remember it?
2: Yeah, I was watching that game when it happened. I was i was a kid. I think I was 13, 12 or 13 at that point.
0: Yeah. There it goes. A long drive. If it stays fair, home run.
2: You know, he's familiar. He's one of those voices. You know, when, when you hear somebody like, a, a Kevin Harlan or Marv Albert or, I mean, well, the list could go on and on. Dick Stockton is one of those guys. You go, oh, I know that voice. That's Dick Stockton. So, a, another familiar voice. Unfortunately, you know, he's stepping down and another voice we're not going to be hearing much of, I guess, at this point.
1: Yeah, he said he plans to spend retirement playing piano, traveling to Europe and writing on his website, dstockton.com. I also do a column for the Thousand Islands Sun newspaper in Alexandria Bay, New York where he and his wife spend their summers. So he's going to stay busy. Used to be married to Leslie Visser, maybe the best sports broadcasting power couple ever. Hey, hey you know those uh, two?
2: that might be, yeah, that, there may be something to that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't, I don't know if I realized that marriage ended, I guess it was about 11 years ago or so. So he's got another wife now. And, and speaking of retiring sports journalists, did you catch the 60-minute story on the legendary writer
2: Dave Kindred? I did not. Now, I used to read Dave Kindred's column quite a bit. I always enjoyed his writing, but no, I did not see the 60 Minutes piece on him.
1: Right. And he's he's a guy that's real well-known up in the Northeast, but not a national guy as well. And I mean, he d- did like a billion Super Bowls and just kind of one of those Hall of Fame guys. I recommend our listeners seek it out if you haven't. Kindred's been retired for a few years, but the story on 60 Minutes where he starts going to girls' high school basketball games in retirement in the small town he lives in. He then starts writing stories about them each game for a box of milk duds. It's it's a real heartwarming story.
2: (laughs) You know, Dave Kentridge is one of those guys I mean, just, you know, I think sometimes you can tell when you hear an, an announcer, a voice, how genuine they are. I think sometimes when you read someone's writing, and of course, being a writer myself, I can kind of identify I think you know Dave Kindred's one of those guys you read his writing, and he just seems like such a genuine guy you know with a with a sense of humor you can you can feel it through his writing, and that's one of the reasons I always enjoyed reading his columns.
1: Last thing I wanted to mention, and this is off sports a little bit, but this past weekend, I saw a documentary on Netflix, and it's trending, so if you've got Netflix you're probably going to notice this documentary. It's called Seaspiracy. S-E-A as in ocean or sea. Spiracy like conspiracy. And it's an incredible documentary that I think matters for the future of the planet. It's going to make a couple of my habits change. And if you watch the documentary, I'll just say this. You're going to think as you start watching it, you're going to go, oh, I know this or I know that or whatever. I know where it's going to go, but... This documentary kind of changes directions and takes a right turn and then takes a left turn and a right turn. And I think what he says by the end of this and the big picture, as far as you know, we're talking about everything that's going on right now in the green movement, it's huge. I think it's as, as big, if not bigger than anything that we're doing now to get this thing squared away.
2: And I just thought it was a, an incredibly well done documentary as well. Sea Spiracy. Yeah, I have seen I mean, I've seen it listed. I have not checked it out, but I will put that on my list because, yes, I do have Netflix and I watch it quite a bit. I enjoy watching documentaries, so that is one I'll definitely put on my list. to have to check it out. That is all I've got. You have anything. Is there anything that I've forgotten? I can't think of anything I've forgotten, but I, I just think, you know, at least things are on the upswing. As I said, no matter what the Cougars do in the Final Four, they got there. Opening day of Major League Baseball, that's my big excitement, Robert. So, you know, at least this week and uh, knocking on wood here, we've got uh, some things to look forward to and some positive things to talk about with Houston sports because, boy, they've been few and far between the last few months. One
1: thing to watch that we didn't mention as far as the Astros in baseball, they have changed the consistency of the baseball, which is supposed to bring potentially the home runs down a little bit. That's going to be an interesting thing to follow this year.
2: Well, we'll see. You know, maybe that bodes well for the pitching and any help the pitchers can get, especially with the Astros are concerned that that's, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see what that happens. It seems like every year we're watching to see as much what kind of baseballs they're using as to how they're being hit. So we'll see. We'd love your feedback, suggestions,
1: questions, topics. messages through Twitter, Facebook, or email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Go get those vaccinations, kids. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.